ٹوپکس The first topic is about the funding gap, the, um, the aid gap, and a global call to aid uh, the, uh, the needy around the world. So there's a, there's a big gap for, in, in terms of what is needed and what has been pledged. And we shall be talking about that from 7.30 a.m. onwards. And the second topic is about mental health and cleanliness. How important is cleanliness? for our mental health, for, for our soul, um, um, uh, as well as our um, general well-being. So those are the two topics. The second topic we shall start about um, 8.15 a.m. So please uh, do join us for both of these discussions. The, lum- the number to call is 020-8687-7878. This is a live show, so we would love to have your calls on board. So do join us for both of these discussions and with that uh, assalamu alaikum warm welcome to the studios imam bhatti how are you assalamu alaikum warm welcome to you as well how was uh, your weekend yeah it was good by the grace of allah um we i attend i had the opportunity to, to attend uh, the centenary jalsa salana of ghana right. um where his holiness azim muslim ahmed may allah be his helper um gave a conclusion speech to mm. the jalsa salana that was held in ghana right um which was of course um given in Islamabad Tilford mm. so that was saturday and then sunday work <laughs> <laughs> okay so yeah. the we- weekend was quite um it was good quite quick yeah, yeah okay exactly yeah so so were you actually um in Tilford uh, or or were you here in the studio i had a, no i had the opportunity to be in Tilford right um, okay um empty africa did help in the part of broadcasting the jalsa salana in ghana right um, the annual convention in ghana annual right. convention yeah. the special thing was that it was the 100 years of the establishment of the jamaat in ghana correct so um, it was the 91st jalsa um so it had a special meaning behind it um mm-hmm. um yes yeah, so empty africa had a huge uh, i wouldn't say huge but uh, was an opportunity from um allah that, um we we were able to help out in the broadcasting aspect um 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 you know um to help out during the um three days of jalsa so it's good ramla right okay yeah. so did mta broadcast the the entire three days actually yes yes oh, okay yes. all right so, so they were available actually of course okay. it was a yeah. uh, mta international of course had their own link um, sure. and then this via mta africa youtube channel um we were able to broadcast then of course then there were the private channels etc and all the sure. you know um But yeah, alhamdulillah, it was a good broadcast. Um, yeah, absolutely. So I, I also got the opportunity to actually be in Islamabad and, and uh, in Tilford and uh, be able to listen that uh, to their address by concluding address by His Holiness, Hazrat Mizam Asur Ahmad, may Allah be his helper, and a very inspirational address um, as well. And um, it was, uh, you know, 40,000 people, almost 40,000 yeah. people participated in that, uh, in that con- or were participating in that convention in Ghana while... we were here and he was addressing and about i think uh, just over a thousand people were were there in uh, in dilford but um, i guess it was quite uh, emotional as well and uh, his holiness as, as well uh, you know you don't you don't hear him often talk about uh, regret Yes, because yes. uh, he, he, he was planned to go but unfortunately due to some circumstances he wasn't able to attend yeah 
the Jalsa. As, as for the listener out there, um, His Holiness did, you know, um, for part of his lifetime, was actually um, posted in Ghana um, as, a, as, a, as a teacher in a head school and one of the colleges, um, high schools. So he did spend, I think, around eight to ten years in Ghana. So Ghana is basically part of his life as well. So yeah. every time That's he used to go there, there's a very special clip um, of um, His Holiness as well where he visited Africa for the first time. And he said, as well, I feel like I'm amongst my own people, etc. So it's very emotional. And as you were mentioning as well, um, towards the end of the conclusion address, he did say, I do still have that desire and I wasn't able to attend, etc. Yeah, he said that I regret exactly. not, not so, being there in person. So, yeah, um, yeah. It was very emotional, very emotional. Looks, yeah, definitely, definitely. Yeah, absolutely. No, that was um, yeah. It was it was uh, quite an event, and absolutely. And and you're right. I mean, MT Africa. So uh, you know, congratulations on holding a successful uh, broadcast of that. And and it was really great. Also, I think this this probably was the the only annual convention that I can remember um, in which His Holiness. Uh, was not uh, was actually uh, you know speaking from Islamabad um, in Tilford, and was actually talking directly uh, um, to to the Emir of uh, yes, or, yes. or the president of yes. that uh, that country, and 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 you know they were they were talking to each other literally. Exactly, yeah, uh, and we, we and were just listening, listening. Exactly, it's like we didn't exist between those two conversations. It was such it? an interesting yeah, chat, and everybody was enjoying um, that chat. Uh, uh, you know, they were talking about the numbers, they were talking about various yeah, things. Uh, it was um, it was very very interesting. So yeah, it, it, it's um, it, and and the link obviously was uh, was go- was quite good mm. for them to be able to Definitely. have yeah. that chat and yeah. and have that connection. Right. No, excellent. Um, thank you very much for that. Right. So that brings me to um, uh, to our next segment, which is about uh, the headlines appearing in the newspapers uh, this morning. So. Um, Several papers um, today lead on the continued fallout from comments made by MP Lee Anderson, who was suspended from the Conservative Parliamentary Party over the weekend. Sunak urged to speak out as Islamophobia row deepens leads the front of Monday's Guardian. It reports senior members of the Tory party have criticised the dangerous rhetoric. The Daily Telegraph takes a different tack on the same story, reporting leaked WhatsApp message, which shows the Prime Minister is facing warnings from the Red Wall Tory MPs of a backlash after Mr. Anderson was suspended by the Parliamentary Party. The Red Wall refers to an area in the north of England in which Labour have traditionally been successful, but where the Conservatives won a number of seats in 2019. It notes that while no MP explicitly expresses support for Mr. Anderson, they do feel their constituents... their uh, their constituents have concern about the fallout the fallout from the decision in a follow up to a story which appeared on the front of the sunday times the metro reports uh, times radio political editor kate mccann talking about her experience of having her drink spiked the journalist who has also written about her experience in monday's time times wrote on x she had a drink spiked by a group of men so brazen they didn't care who saw under the headline Generation Sick Note, the Daily Mail reports the young people are increasingly blaming mental health problems for being jobless, according to a report by the Resolution Foundation. The shift means people in their early 20s are now more likely to be unemployed due to ill health than those in their early 40s, it notes, as it says critics are questioning, if it is all snowflakery. 
The Times has a different take on the story, going with the headline, Poor Mental Health Keeps Young Adults Out of Work. However, the paper's lead story carries a warning from Home Secretary James Cleverly that deep fakes pose a serious threat to elections being held around the world this year. The Sun carries a report about Arsenal goalkeeper David Raya, who it claims has a banned Excel bully dog to guard him. The paper reports he has hired experts to train the dog, but it says uh, it has approached the player for comment. Like many of Monday's newspapers, it also has an image of Liverpool manager Jurgen Klopp, whose team beat Chelsea to win the Carabao Cup on Sunday. The Daily Express reports um, on, wh- on, on what it says are damning claims that there could be an increase in immigration under a, label, under a Labour government. It is based on a report from Henry Jackson Society and the Conservative government. Net migration from the year up to June 2023 was 672,000, close to a record high. Global house price downturn shows sign of reversal as rate, rates cut hopes rise, reads the splash on the front of the Financial Times. And that uh, concludes the segment on the headlines appearing in the newspapers this morning. We shall continue this discussion on what's happening in the papers as well as in the world of sport. Uh, now that uh, Imam Nabil Bhatti is here, we will obviously talk about uh, football and, uh, and Arsenal. So do stay tuned. We shall be back right after this quick break. Listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Assalamu May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you. Welcome back to this live edition of the Breakfast Show from South London Studios of Voice of Islam. Today is Monday, the 26th of February 2024. The time is 7:17 a.m. And we're still talking about um, uh, the headlines as well as uh, what's happening in the world of sports. So, what is happening in the world of sports, especially in the world of football, uh, Imam Bhatti, our football expert? Think you've been waiting for me to you know, ask yeah, that, answer that question for the past three weeks. Uh, of course, some good news this time. So, um, uh, uh, world of football, I think uh, um, you know the top three spots are very tight. I think they have one point between each other. Yeah. Um, I will speak on behalf of Arsenal, as you know, I'm an Arsenal fan. So, um, yeah. So Arsenal has been doing really good. I think we've been scoring more than plus four goals for the last three matches. Right. So the goal difference is uh, in a positive side. Um, so in the last six matches, I think we won all our games. Mm. So it is a good thing. Um, I hope it continues, but sometimes, you know, how Arsenal's run is, it might... Uh, you know, Long may it continue. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. So yeah. their the, the wavelength is just up and down, up and down, up and down. So hopefully it's just on the higher level 
for now. Um, so what do you think uh, led to this uh, uh, this upswing? What happened? What changed? I think it's just they they I think they got to a point where they knew they have to just keep scoring goals um despite the fact if they concede any because I think towards the end it's going to be on goal differences rather than points. Because right now everyone's got the same amount of games. Um I think Liverpool's on 60, City's on 59, Arsenal's on 58. Um so any go any for, I think for the next five matches if anything happens even if any of the teams drew a game or even lose one it comes down to goal differences so i think arsenal's here to the point where they just have to keep scoring goals but uh, winning six matches on the trot and uh, you know from where they were last season this is this is quite a quite a comeback would, would you not say but even last season they were they were similar at this point yeah, anyway so well. um but towards the you end they just kind of um, okay. go towards the the downside but it's a positive thing i think maybe due to you know realistically i don't think we have a chance of winning champions league mm-hmm. but that's just I'm a realistic why, why do you say that i'm just a realistic thing i think we're just a very young team in terms of mm-hmm. champions league experience um you know we don't have that depth yet as you would think of man city or you know um real madrid these um you know experienced champions league winners so i hope we do get to a good spot mm-hmm. where we are i think about like i said in the round of 16 we just lost to porto this week so one nil but which was away so uh, you know um i've got like 50-50 name like i say 730 chances between us winning the champions league it's going to be a difficult route but i think they're focusing seeing more on premier league right now right which is a good thing instead of you know putting all your effort into a spot where there's like probably 25% chance you might win it sure yeah so, it's a much much tougher you know and nowadays uh, i was just watching the liverpool match yesterday half of the teams in it anyway so um they just barely won the carabao cup hmm. against the uh, you know um, van dijk's last header um but yeah it's, it's so who's on top at the moment in premier league is liverpool, liverpool with 60, still on 60 top 60 yeah. points yeah and and then number 2 would be uh, man city with 59 and then it's, Le- uh, it's arsenal, arsenal with 58, 58 yeah. yes so it's very tight between very tight, uh, yeah. top 3 mm. yeah um so let's see yeah okay let's it's going to be a roll- roller coaster in terms of uh, you know the next couple of weeks <laughs> yes indeed absolutely right okay um before we go back to uh, to, to other headlines and other uh, news and events happening around the world a reminder of the two topics so the first topic which we shall start in about 10 minutes time is about the funding gap within in the aid uh, in global aid which um, is getting bigger and bigger and a lot more people uh, need help than the aid Uh, the amount of aid which has been pledged so we shall be delving into that and talking to uh, we'll be talking to a couple of experts on that and then from 8:15 am onwards we shall be talking about mental health and cleanliness what's the linkage if at all and the number to call is 02086877878 as i mentioned earlier this is a live show we would love to have you participate in the discussion right so um Uh, in other news uh, the guardian uh, this morning also talks about um, uh, what's happening in uh, palestine um, so um, according to the guardian the un agency for palestinian refugees has been forced to stretch every dollar and juggle its finances in order to continue vital work in gaza after 18 donor countries suspended funding over allegations of links to hamas The UN Relief and Works Agency for Palestine for Palestinian Refugees in the Near East is facing a shortfall of 450 million dollars from a budget of 880 million 
as it confronts the biggest humanitarian crisis seen in the organization's 75-year history. Last week, Philippe Lazarani, the head of the agency, said UNRWA had reached a breaking point. Now it reports that it has been forced to pause aid deliveries to northern Gaza, where it is currently not possible to conduct proper humanitarian operations amid increasing reports of famine among people in the area. UNRWA runs schools, healthcare, social services, and water sanitation and provides food assistance for Palestinians in Gaza, the West Bank, and East Jerusalem, um, as well as Syria, Lebanon, and Jordan. In Gaza, more than 150 UNRWA staff provided, providing desperately needed humanitarian support have been killed since the start of the war between Israel and Hamas in October. In January this year, Israel circulated a dossier alleging that 12 of the 30,000 people employed by UNRWA had taken part in the atrocities on 7th October when about 1,200 uh, sorry, 1,200 Israelis were murdered and about 40, 240 taken hostage. The US, EU, the US, UK, EU, Germany and 15 other countries announced they were suspending funding until the outcome of a high-level investigation ordered by Antonio Guterres, the UN Security Secretary General, was known. The investigation is expected to be completed in early March. The agency's financial position was precarious and complicated, said Tamara Al-Rifai, UNRWA's Director of External Affairs. It had persuaded some countries that have not suspended funding to provide advance donations and was delaying paying some bills in order to pay staff salaries in February and March. It's very hand-to-mouth. For an organization with the scope of UNRWA, this is insane, Al-Rifai told The Observer. Um, and Al-Rifai further added, it's insane that we've survived so long without a financial safety net. Most organizations of our size have financial reserves. We have to stretch every dollar, unquote. Most donor countries also commit funds for a year ahead, although a handful offer multi-year agreements. The United Nations only covered the salaries of international staff. UNRWA has to raise funds for salaries of local staff as well as operational costs, Al-Rafai said. Every year we close with a minus because we never get what we asked for, she added. The war in Gaza has been a major drain on resources, uh, we're facing unprecedented demand for services. The impact of the donors' freeze is not only on our ability to respond to a humanitarian crisis of epic mag- magnitude, but also our operations across the region. All UNRWA schools in Gaza are being used as shel- shelters for displaced people, so kids are not going to school, and that is a major concern. If we don't get the funding back, it's not going to be possible to bring all these kids back to school. In Gaza, we're extremely worried about the immediate impact of the funding freeze on our ability to feed people or manage shelter to run health services. This according to Tamara Al-Rifai, who is the um, um, who's the spokesperson for UNRWA. Ireland, which has uh, not joined the funding freeze, committed an extra 20 million euros to UNRWA this month to help address the agency's financial crisis. Sean Fleming, Minister for International Development, said Israel, uh, sorry, Ireland has made clear that there needs to be a dramatic upscaling in the level of humanitarian aid reaching people in Gaza. Ireland is also stepping up to provide 20 million euros to UNRWA to address the urgent needs of Palestinian 
refugees. The U.S. is the agency's largest donor with a $343 million contribution in 2022. Germany gave $202 million, the EU $114 million, and, and the U.K. $21 million. Washington has signaled its intention to maintain the funding freeze, whereas UNRWA believes other countries may be open to ending the freeze depending on the outcome of the investigation and an internal UNRWA review of measures to ensure staff neutrality. Israel has accused UNRWA of enabling military activity for many years, although attempts to discredit and delegitimize the agency had taken a sharper turn recently, this according to Al-Rifai. Israel's six-page dossier alleging UNRWA staff were allegedly involved in the 7th October atrocities surfacing this at the same time as the International Court of Justice ruled there was a plausible case for genocide charges against Israel in Gaza. The dossier named 12, mem- 12 members of UNRWA staff that it claims took part in the Hamas action and alleges there are around 190 Hamas and Islamic jihad terrorist operators who serve as UNRWA employees. No evidence, however, was included in the dossier. Al-Rifai added, an organization primarily composed of 30,000 local staff will mirror the communities it serves. We have a lot of safeguards in place, but there is no zero risk in in an extremely charged environment. Unquote. So, um, Pretty precarious situation, uh, Imam Bhatti. There, I mean, we've uh, we've seen images on social media, you know, um, kids going, uh, well, babies dying, um, kids literally picking up uh, um, food from uh, uh, from the floor and and filling their pockets uh, yeah. with it, and uh, you know, <laughs> extremely desperate circumstances. Especially it's very, in the very, North. very sad to see. Um, you know, I would I wouldn't say necessarily we're lucky in that sense. We are lucky, of course, that yeah. it's not, you know, affecting us physically over here. But just seeing children being involved, innocent children being involved in such, you know, I think I would say human mistakes. Um, it's very heartful to see, as His Holiness has mentioned, you know, that um, Islam has a solution to all of this already. Yeah. Um, if you want to go into the acts of war and principles, etc., Islam has given the solution to all um, peace. Um, it, children are not to be affected in any way in time of war. Yeah. Children, elderly women, to the to the, you know to the part of mosques, uh, churches, synagogues, all of this Islam has already given you know its principles regarding it, um, and to see. You know um, that children are being affected in this at this time, an age of our era. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very sad, and it's very sad. Yes, if, if you have children of your own, you can relate more. One hundred percent. And and just to give you some statistics, UNRWA educates uh, five hundred fifty thousand children in over seven hundred schools in the West Bank, Lebanon. Jordan, Syria, as well as Gaza. So many of these children, uh, many thousands of these children in in Gaza, are um, uh, are obviously at the moment not going to school. Not to mention, well, at the moment, I guess it uh, they, they can't even eat. Exactly. They don't have. Food so school eat. is, I think, the last thing on their mind, anyways, yeah, isn't it? So yeah. it's uh, it's it's very tragic, and it really hard goes out uh, to them. Um, His Holiness. Uh, Hazrat Mizza Masood Ahmed, uh, the current head of the Ahmed Muslim community, has um, 
uh, actually advised the community and has asked the community to dedicate at least one uh, prostration in every prayer, in every salat, to the to the uh, plight of the Palestinian people and and pray for them. And and indeed, our heart really goes out to them. And um, sometimes one even wonders that one should probably offer all prostrations for these people because they are really really in a in a desperate situation so we should all remember them uh, in our prayers right so that concludes our segment on current affairs a very quick break and when we come back we will delve right into the first segment which is about um uh, the um the funding gap the gap between what has been pledged as aid globally and what the world needs so do stay do stay tuned we shall be back right after this very very short break you're listening to the voice of islam radio Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you. Welcome back to this live edition of the Breakfast Show from South London Studios of Voice of Islam. We are about to delve into the first topic, which is about the funding gap in the international humanitarian assistance or aid. So, despite soaring humanitarian needs globally, humanitarian agencies actually face a drastic funding shortfall. Just to give you some numbers, the United Nations as a whole appealed for $51.5 billion billion in 2023. But what it received was actually only about 38% of this amount, thereby creating a significant gap. This shortage obviously directly impacted aid operations and leading to critical shortages in food, water, sanitation, blankets, mosquito nets, and and so many other things in refugee camps. The conflict and the climate crisis um, actually drove this surge in the needs, exacerbating economic uh, disruption as well as infrastructure damage. Extreme weather events uh, also deepened this crisis with droughts and floods hitting vulnerable regions like the Horn of Africa. Experts call for uh, systematic changes, including overhauling funding mechanisms and addressing root causes, yet political obstacles hinder meaningful reforms, highlighting the urgent need for global governance restructuring. So as I mentioned earlier, the lack of funds uh, leads to shortages of essential resources, like food, water, shelter, um, healthcare, refugees, disaster survivors. Um, yeah, tell us more. Basically, yeah, in, in regards to, you know, I think it's very, we've seen history of people, you know, leaving their countries, etc., and migrating to another place due to persecution. Um, the MD Muslim community is unfortunately one of those groups where. We have been persecuted in uh, Pakistan due to uh, believing in the advent of the promised Messiah, um, who is also the founder of uh, the Muslim community, peace be upon him. So we have our, have we've had our members uh, migrate to other countries where their safety 
um, um, it's not um, guaranteed in Pakistan. Um, but you need to understand that Quran has, as we can see um, in the history of you know religion, and Quran has mentioned that um, for those people who do immigrate from their countries, um, God has given them a place of um, refugee and has given the resources for them to thrive in that area. Um, mm-hmm. As is mentioned in the Holy Quran, chapter 4, verse 101, um, where... Um, so this suggests that there's enough resources in the world for people to thrive on. Mm. So They just need to be used properly. They have to be used properly and utilized properly. And Islam has already given that principle and rule where... Like you already know, the zakat is one way of form. Sure. Let's let's circle back um, sure. to this discussion. We now have our first guest uh, for this segment um, on the line. So Sally Dildersley is the advocacy manager at Concern Worldwide, which is an international humanitarian organization working towards the elimination of extreme poverty. Assalamu alaikum. Peace be with you. A very warm welcome to The Breakfast Show. Thank you and thanks for having me to join you today. Lovely to have you here. So, Sally, firstly, tell us uh, how significant is this funding gap, and and has this been uh, significant for concern worldwide as well? I think um, yes. Uh, obviously, the the significant gap funding gap is is huge, as you said, and I think it's worth kind of digging into what that that funding gap looks like mm-hmm. a bit more as well. So. As you said, the funding gap last year was um, huge with only 38% uh, to date funded. Um, and the latest assessment of the needs for this year of um, over 300 million people globally needing humanitarian assistance and protection, those are the people that this funding gap is, is really failing. Um, but those needs have been growing over time. So last year, that that total requirement for the UN coordinated humanitarian response were more than five times as large as 10 years ago. And the gap in funding uh, to cover that need has also been growing. So in 2013, the shortfall was $4.6 billion. Um, But by 2022, that had risen to $22.2 billion. And so as a result, on average, UN coordinated appeals have only met about 60% of those funding requirements over the last decade. And, and that average hides the fact that, that some appeals are much more underfunded than others. So last, in 2022, about a third of appeals received less than 50% of their requested funding. Um, and another factor is that the number of countries with UN appeals that are experiencing protracted or current crisis is also growing. So um, a growing majority of those people that do need humanitarian assistance live in a country that has had a, a UN-coordinated appeal for five or more consecutive years. So these crises are really um, not one-offs. They're protracted and uh, Kind of recurring crises are, are impacting those people. Right. So, um, how is uh, the the funding or the funding gap uh, uh, that the United Nations has uh, reflect what uh, sort of funding concern worldwide gets or not get? Uh, do you get funding uh, from United Nations for your operations? I mean, are you a sort of a 
um, a provider of services locally to United Nations? So we do, um, I think that the UN appeal is uh, the kind of best way to illustrate the fact that there is this funding gra- mm. gap and that the need is kind of growing and increasingly not met. Um, so Concern and other NGOs also receive funding from a, a range of different sources from donor governments. Um, we do sometimes implement the kind of work with those UN agencies to implement in in different countries. The public also gives money to support our, our operations as well. Um, so there are a range of different um, sources of our funding. Um, and it, I think the kind of trends of where we see the funding available are sort of broadly um, matched with where you see those shortfalls in, in funding for the UN appeals in country as well. So, um do you think this this is going to remain an ongoing challenge? And and what do you think is, is behind this? I mean, is this uh, donor fatigue? Uh, uh, because, uh, yeah, one, I mean, the, the money is available probably and is being spent elsewhere. I mean, we, we just recently saw an announcement from the U.S. government that billions and billions of dollars have been, uh, are being given in military aid uh, to, to various countries. Yeah, I think, um, so in terms of what's kind of driving the crisis, I think the strain is yeah, being driven by those intersecting threats from conflict, climate change, socioeconomic vulnerability, um, the kind of global rise in food prices. And um, yeah, I think over the last decade, whilst we have seen donor funding growing, the system does continue to rely on a handful of countries. So, um, for example, last year, the US, Germany and EU contributed about two thirds of all humanitarian finance, mm. humanitarian assistance. And um, I think absolutely we do see that some countries are kind of forgotten crises. And you do see that where there is that kind of political attention and interest and demand that money can be found. Um, and so any one of the things that Concern does is try to advocate for some of those more you know, forgotten crises to make sure that they don't fall off the global agenda. Sure. Um, so what, what's on top of your agenda at the moment in terms of advocacy? So I think one of the, I mean, one of the key things that we are looking at and I think one of the concerns for the future is that you know, climate change is going to be an increasing factor in increasing the needs. Um, And so one of the things that we do need to see is, you know, changes to the humanitarian system itself to make it more efficient, to kind of localise response, to make sure that there's more, you know, flexible long-term funding, that diversified sources of funding. But I guess we also know that the way the world works now more broadly doesn't deliver for a lot of people. So I think our our aspirations are, are for change beyond the aid system. And I think one of the things that we're looking to the, we hope for the, the climate process is that it forces us to look outside those, outside of business as usual for, for solutions. So um, the climate finance needs are kind of really high and are not being met. So there's kind of estimates of the needs of adaptation funding in developing countries are estimated to be about some, somewhere between, 
you know, 160 to 340 billion a year by 2030 and rising. Um, and that's just to invest in kind of adaptation. Um, so we need to really look at how we can kind of leverage new sources of public funding for that. Um, and recent analysis from Oxfam estimated that so for the UK's climate finance commitment, which is a five-year commitment, they could have raised that last year alone just by implementing, you know, polluted pays measures like um, an excess profits tax on fossil fuel producers. Um, and a recent report has also shown that, you know, a shift towards a more sustainable food system could create um, huge benefits a year, improve health, ease the climate crisis um, and, you know, shift away from some of the more kind of destructive and um, approaches to, you know, the food system that, that don't necessarily deliver for those people living in extreme poverty. Um, one of your missions, I believe, is to permanently, you know, transform the lives of people who are living in very extreme poverty. Um, so how does this funding gap hinder your long-term goals and efforts? Um, so I guess we obviously we want to see a world free from extreme poverty and and to do that we you know we aim to reduce that dependence on humanitarian response so really looking at kind of prevention so that people don't need that humanitarian response in the first place so we work with people to kind of build their resilience and with communities to build their capacity to withstand um, or mitigate the impacts of the current crisis um, and that that does mean working with with communities over the long term. And one of the challenges with the funding gap is that although, as I mentioned, countries can be in that protracted state of crisis over a number of years, um, humanitarian funding tends to be quite often short term, so often for under a year. And that means that although you can you can work with communities to develop a, a long term plan. You can't. It's difficult to commit to being able to deliver it when you don't know for sure that the funding is going to come next year. Mm. Um, often it does, but there's also then that kind of added administrative burden of applying for you know, many smaller funding proposals. Um, so I guess one of the things that we would ask, we're asking for and pushing for, is that you know longer term, predictable but also flexible, multi-year funding. Um, so that you can respond as the context evolves, um, but also you know work on those kind of longer term solutions. And I think that's really important for organisations and communities to be able to plan and respond uh, and make those kind of more tangible interventions that really will have an impact on on people's lives and, and reduce that humanitarian need. So um, just a question out there: when emergencies do happen um, as you are one of the first responders to emergencies how would you how does the organization um, prioritize and you know allocate resources um, as due to the limited funding mm. well I, I I guess our, our first step whenever we're responding um, when a when a crisis happens in, in one of the countries that we're working in the first step is always to do that that needs assessment to see what the gaps are really understand uh, that, that situation, understand what others are doing and uh, or looking to respond and who's doing what. And then through that needs assessment, then 
the next step is then to set the priorities of what resources uh, each community needs where we should be kind of allocating resources and and both that assessment and prioritization are, are done using kind of a mix of different sources of information but also importantly by involving the communities and people affected um, in that process so through direct interviews through surveys through focus groups and also by talking to local authorities so um, that initial assessment tends to be fairly quick it tends to be a combination of both kind of quantitative could you quantitative. maybe share some examples of uh, innovative programming in you know various health nutrition etc that um, CW has implemented in response to these challenges yeah so um so one approach that we developed is focused on you know increasing the the scale and effectiveness of nutrition emergency response particularly in fragile uh, conflict affected or disaster prone countries um so the approach aims to help health facilities to anticipate and also to respond to increased demands in acute malnutrition treatment services that often occur during seasonal and other predictable shocks so in many con communities the number of children seeking treatment for acute malnutrition tends to peak during certain times of the year um, and these seasonal surges in demand for nutrition assistance are driven by different overlapping factors. So, for example, the pre-harvest hunger gap, increased incidence of malaria or diarrhea, and then movements associated with grazing livestock and workload patterns. Um, and it's during these peaks that the potential to save lives can be greatest, but the health systems and wider humanitarian sector are often not able to provide timely and effective response. Um, so this approach um, works with health facility staff to, um, with tools to assess that local context, identify these trends, risks and capacities. Mm -hmm. And it helps to set those kind of facility specific thresholds that when they are crossed, it moves the health system from operating as kind of business as usual to a more intense phase of operating based on that severity of the shock. So when they pass a, a threshold trigger, um, agreed upon actions and support from both government and non-government actors like concern um, can be ramped up across the health system. And that allows health facilities to get that support when they need it. And we've also seen that it's really improved that kind of relationship between the community and, and health facilities. So we've seen that approach um scaled up and grown you know, particularly in western central africa and it's being adopted by by governments and other uh, donors looking ahead um you know just to finish off the interview um what are your greatest concerns and challenges um, regarding the future of humanitarian aid i mean i think this this kind of comes back to to what i was saying earlier in terms of you know that We've seen this growing demand and growing gap in funding, and it, I think the main concern and challenge is that that is only set to to increase with you know increasing strains um, on the system from, from you know growing impacts of climate change. Um, and I think we haven't necessarily seen donors and, and the system respond rapidly enough to to adapt to that that growing demand and context so i think what i would like to see is you know 
um, really more significant changes in the system to, to improve the efficiency, effectiveness, to diversify the funding sources, and to really kind of localize and shift that, that power and decision making more to those kind of local immediate actors as well. Um, as well as then the, the kind of looking to, to how we can sort of yeah, leverage more public funding for these kind of crises and address those underlying drivers. So Sally, how hopeful are you and, and how difficult do you think your job is at the moment? Um, I think it's it's always kind of difficult to remain hopeful in these um, when you look at such huge numbers and I think where I get hope from is you know working with colleagues and um, you know who are kind of responding to these crises and kind of I guess seeing their their personal dedication and commitment to uh, working with people to really lift them out of poverty and I think also seeing the impacts of some of the programs that we we work on that, that do work that can actually make a huge tangible difference to people's lives. Um, I think that's where I get my hope from but I think the challenge is is definitely there but I think it's you know important not to kind of lose hope. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, uh, we must continue to uh, to hope and and hope for the best, and um, and certainly our thoughts, prayers, and uh, yeah, yeah, indeed, our prayers as well are with you and uh, your efforts. Uh, so, Sally Tillisley, thank you so very much for joining this morning. Really a pleasure to speak to you. Thank you for sharing uh, your insights into you know what appears to be a a huge and a growing challenge. Um, and let's hope and pray that. Uh, um, uh, the future actually bodes well for uh, for those who actually need um, assistance around the world. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Lovely speaking to you. Have a lovely week ahead. Peace be with you. So that was uh, Sally Tillsley, who is the Advocacy Manager at Concern Worldwide, which is an international humanitarian organization working towards the elimination of uh, extreme poverty. Um, right. Pretty pretty significant challenges there, as, uh, as Ali was saying, uh, Imam Hatti. Yes, I agree. Um, you know, um, and hats off to those, you know, first responders who go to the emergencies, mm-hmm. etc. And, you know, for we can't, I don't think, personally for me, I can comprehend what the scene is there, especially, you know, regarding Israel-Gaza war, even if you talk about the Russian and Ukraine wars. Yeah. We are, we are lucky in the sense that we don't literally go to those scenes and uh, witness what these first responders have witnessed and still manage to go and perform what they do and, you know, allocate resources and help out as much as they can. So hats off for them. Um, like we were mentioning before as well, um, we, you and me agree that Islam has a solution to everything anyways in mm. the aspect. But what solution can they bring to the humanitarian side or aid, etc.? Um, Islam states that you know, one way of worshipping Allah is serving humanity. Yeah. And there's different aspects in terms of serving humanity. Um, there's a word that is used in the um, Holy Quran um, regarding a neighbor that specifically that a neighbor is not just your neighbor on your, you know, who, who lives on the right side of your house or left mm. house side. Mm. The neighbor word, the neighbor means it could be your work colleagues. 
Mm. It could be your friends. It could be anyone. So that circle of, you know, any contact you have with someone mm. means that you have to be able to help them and aid them in their time of need. Mm. So that simple action. Principle. Yeah. Principle, I would say action. Yeah. Serves purpose of humanitarian need in all. So it could be anyone. Yeah. Anyone you meet on the street. Anyone you've seen. Yeah. Right. Any acts of, you know, deed you do in aiding that person is a way and form of worship to Allah the Almighty. So that, in essence, is a very beautiful teaching that Islam has given it us. Is, it is indeed. Absolutely. Let's now go to our next guest, who is David Westwood. Um, David is the Director of Policy and Programs at World Vision, and he brings over 30 years of experience in international development, humanitarian relief, and advocacy. Assalamu alaikum. Peace be with you. A warm welcome to The Breakfast Show. Thank you ever so much. Thank you, David, for, for joining us. So so let's start with uh, your organization's overarching mm-hmm. mission, can you define that? What is it that you guys are after? Yeah, so um, World Vision has a has a vision which is for fullness of life for all children. You know, what, what that means is that children are healthy, they're educated, they're protected from violence, they participate and have a voice in the decisions that affect them. That they live in families that care for them, hmm. that have sustainable livelihoods and uh, they live in communities where they're respected and uh, promote their rights. So, uh, World Vision work, works to achieve this, deliver this in two different ways. One is through kind of longer-term community development work. So that's uh, providing education, for example, uh, materials, school uniforms that would help children access school, providing teacher training so they get good quality education, and then maybe working with parents and after-school clubs so they can support the children's education. Uh, but more and more, we're also being involved in kind of more humanitarian emergency response right. uh, work because the world is seemingly increasingly more fragile, isn't it? Mm. And uh, more and more kind of life-saving interventions are required. And, and uh, part of that is also creating safe spaces for children just to to have a break from what's going on around them. You know? I mean, last last year, for example, World Vision responded to 78 different emergency crises around the world, uh, covering 60 countries, you know, 36 million people. Uh, so it's a big, yeah. a big task. You know. And a big mission as well. Yes. Yeah. Um, David, we are coming up uh, to the eight o'clock news, uh, yeah. but I would like to continue this interview. There's, uh, there's lots that we want to ask you and, and talk about. Uh, cool. So if you don't mind staying on the line uh, for a few more minutes and then we shall have you back after the uh, eight o'clock news and continue our discussion on this very, very important topic. No problem at all. Excellent. Thank you. So, um, yeah, so the time is uh, 7.59, um, almost coming up uh, to 8 o'clock now. Uh, We shall be going off uh, to a news break now. And when we come back, we will continue our discussion on this international uh, funding gap uh, in in, uh, between what has been pledged or is being pledged and what is actually needed out there. And we're talking to David Westwood, who is the Director of Policy and Programs at World Vision. We will continue this discussion after this news break, so please do stay tuned. The number to call once again is 
You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you. Welcome back to this live edition of The Breakfast Show from South London Studios of Voice of Islam. We are talking this morning about the the gap between international humanitarian assistance and what is actually needed out there. And before we went on to the news break, we were talking to David Westwood, who is the Director of Policy and Programs at World Vision. Assalamu alaikum. David, are you still there? I'm still here. Yes. Excellent. Thank you very much. So thank you for um, for staying on the line. So yeah. So before we went on to the break, we were talking about uh, you were telling us about uh, the world World Vision's uh, mission and what is it out there to do. Your thoughts on the funding gap? How significant it is? And it's a, it's one of the big challenges we face. Really, um, as you say, there's a growing level of need. Uh, at the minute, humanitarian-wise, I think the estimate is 300 million people are going to need humanitarian assistance this year. That's kind of one in 26, every 26 people, which is quite phenomenal when you think about it. Um, at the same time, you know, as needs going up, there are less resources available. You know, you have a, a cost of living challenge. You know, uh, government budgets are being cut where aid is always uh, a vulnerable parts of that and then at the same time you've got prices going up you know prices of, of food and fuel and commodities so those those two things make it very difficult do you think david that um the world in general has got its priorities right in terms of uh in terms of making sure that we give to those who who need help the most I think that's a that's a good question. I mean, I I think we've we've recently just launched a, a global campaign called Enough. Hmm. Uh, it, it's in response to the global hunger crisis, uh, you know, which has has not been very visible. Um, slowly, slowly, a lot of uh, countries are having real challenges with food, um, and, and yet uh, it's very hard to resource. We tried to launch this global campaign. Um, to, to raise money and visibility for the crisis because we, we believe that there actually is enough enough resources in the world for everyone, um, but it needs redistributing, you know. So the title of the campaign is Enough is, is kind of twofold, you know, enough, there is enough, but enough, we, sh- we shouldn't keep having to deal with issues of, of, of need and, and bad distribution of resources. We can do something about it. So, so tell us, when you go... Um, uh, to these advocacy programs, when you when you talk to various donors, what are you hearing? I think the you know the conversations we've had with donors, they they kind of understand. They also you know feel frustrated um, because they know the scale of need. I think that the, the challenge for them is obviously resourcing, and so a lot of the dialogue now is well, how how can we reinvest more in, in kind of preventing these things from happening in the first place? How can we invest in building local resilience to shocks, uh, you know, help people mm. uh, adopt, for example, agricultural practices that, that help uh, reduce climate change rather than, than degrade the environment more? How do you... Um, but climate change, people? David, is a, is a global phenomenon. Yeah. You know, you, you can't address it in one country or one city or no. one locality. That's very true. The, the multifaceted 
uh, responses required, but we can do little bits locally, and we've we've seen the difference that, for example, just regenerating in, in, uh, growth, you know, forestry locally can make at a local level, you know, where people who were really struggling to make ends meet actually can can start to see uh, kind of woodland uh, forestry return, and then can have a chance of building some kind of sustainable economic livelihood that that lives in balance with nature. Um, so if you can find small solutions, um, then it, it buys us time to address some of the bigger kind of global factors, which is, which seem so hard to deal with at the minute. You know, not, not placing the onus always on, obviously, the people that are suffering from the effects of climate change, but um, what are the sol- we need to all be part of the solution, don't we, as well? Definitely. Um, what are the specific challenges that World Vision faces, you know, when delivering aid, especially in zones and areas where, you know, they've been affected by uh, climate-related disasters? I think the obviously, as I said, one, one of them is, is resourcing. Okay. Um, I think the the other issue, uh, it's not just climate, because often, often kind of emergencies have multi, you know, the, the mix of climate that, that leads to kind of safety issues. We, we have challenges with access and safety of staff around the world. Um, you know, that could be insecurity due to flooding or earthquake tremors, damaged infrastructure. Uh, we're also seeing some challenges in some countries around, uh, you know, things like countries that are facing sanctions, like um, Mali, Niger, where we work, very hardness to get things in, permits, visas, those kind of things are all becoming harder. Um, in some contexts, even transferring money into countries become complicated so that there's a there's a challenge with the with the context itself there's a challenge with the kind of the bureaucracy and, and uh, whole administrative side of, of aid which has become more and more complex as well mm-hmm. <clears throat> so looking you know um, you mentioned how you know you have these challenges regarding mm-hmm. um, you know uh, climate related disasters yeah. in light of you know the current um, geopolitical challenges. Mm-hmm. What are the you know measures that the World Vision has taken to address the root causes of humanitarian crisis? I guess as you said, there, there, there are three things we kind of advocate for um, globally. One, one is to actually just raise attention to some of the crises that are outside the media. Obviously, uh, a lot of things happen uh, that, that people don't really know about. Um, you know, in Sudan, for example, is the world's largest crisis in terms of displaced people, and yet we don't hear about that. So there's a lot of, of work needs to be done, just raising awareness of these different kind of emergencies going on. Um, I think the other the other thing that we're really advocating for is is not just uh, resources for responding to the many crises, but actually that we have resources uh, and funding to enable us to, precisely to invest in those things I was talking about, you know, how to build uh, resilience in, in local people, how to prepare better in advance, because it's always better to and cheaper to to prevent things from happening rather than to have to then respond to the consequences of emergencies. Uh, and then always, you know, there's always aspects of access and respect for international humanitarian law that are important in each individual context has it's challenges that we're we're advocating for. 
Right. And David, finally then, uh, how hopeful are you mm. about the future uh, in terms of addressing this uh, this growing funding gap? I, 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 you know, I always believe in hope. You know, I think, uh, mm. you know, faith is really important to, to not lose faith, to uh, to believe in a God who who cares for the world sure. and who loves the world, and I think that what we see is aid does make a difference. And what we mm. we witness day by day in our work is that you know individual lives can be saved and can be transformed with a little bit of help. Um, I was talking to uh, some people the other day. We have a, a a program in Somalia called the Crisis Recovery Program, mm-hmm. and we've been working with eighteen thousand people. Uh, just to help them develop sustainable livelihoods in the face of kind of droughts and floods that, that, that keep occurring. And uh, there was one testimony from one woman who uh, was a kind of mother that, uh, that kind of led her own household and was really uh, almost without hope. Um, and with the support she provided, was then able to go on and, and provide for herself and her children. So mm. they're individual stories uh, that make up the many number of people that are helped by aid organizations globally mm. that do make a difference. And we can't give up hope. We have to keep helping uh, and having having faith that things will get better. But at the same time, I guess one can't help being slightly cross at the at the whole thing. You know, mm. you mentioned these droughts and, and, and famines yeah. and all these problems in Africa uh, because of climate change, which is the yeah. direct result of the industrialization in the West. Mm-hmm. And and when now there is time to actually support the people who have actually been affected in Africa and mm-hmm. other regions around the world, because yeah. of that, uh, you, you know, we're almost pulling our hands back. Yeah, I, I think um, it's easy to get angry as well as <laughs> to feel hopeless. I, I think, uh, sure. you know, we, we have to keep holding people accountable. Yeah. And I, I think it is important to speak and to advocate and to write to your MP and to you know, keep keep raising these issues because something will need to be done about about it, uh, uh-huh. and resources will need to be shared more fairly. Absolutely, cannot agree more, David Westwood. Thank you so very much for joining us. Uh, have a lovely day, the rest of the week. Peace be with you. Thank you ever so much. Goodbye. Thank you. Bye bye. So that was David Westwood, who is the director of policy and programs at World. Vision. I mean, just one's just reminded of, uh, I think, uh, recently the US government announced funding of close to $100 billion in military aid to Ukraine um, and Israel, and I think one more country, um, to uh, give them bombs uh, and guns, uh, you know, to, uh, to kill more people. Um, all in the name of uh, defense. The other side will obviously have a different uh, argument to make, will have a different story to tell. But at the end of the day, it is it is people dying. It is people who are getting affected. And that's because of the war, not to talk about uh, the famine and all of the other, the other problems which have been caused as a result of climate change and so many other things happening in the world. Uh, and, and there we say we don't have money. Uh, and, and yet, you know, we, we are willy-nilly cough up money for for weapons you know um it's it's very uh it's very uh, i was just thinking about it while you're interviewing um our guest there um that the the lack of funding it has that only 38 percent has been used so far 
um, this year. Thirty-eight percent has has actually been given. Given, sorry. So, what, so, so, so in we, terms of what is needed, exactly. So, yeah. what, what is needed. So, we don't even know if that thirty-eight percent has been fully utilized or not. An aspect of that story, um, you know, the gist of the story. But I have to keep saying it. Islam already has a solution to this, mm. right? Fourteen hundred years ago, where apparently there's no concept of you know wealth, economy, etc., mm. and there's no concept of humanitarian aid. Uh, but the history tells us already that uh, God has given Islam t- taught us and the Holy Prophet Muhammad peace be upon him has already given us a solution for humanitarian aid, mm. economic development, right? Where charity and the term yuzakat is a way and form to aid all these things that where people are in need of um, food, water, poverty, mm. housing, whatever it is. Um, for 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 our listener out there, zakat is a way of you know giving your any wealth that you have not used for over a year. Um, around two point five percent of that wealth should be dedicated to a treasury, mm. where that could be utilized um, for the people in need, yeah. and that could be for anything, right? And that could be you know that the state will decide on, etc. Sure. Like in 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 the essence of our story today, the mm. funding issue. Um, so if that. All that all that automatically destroys the you know the concept of the rich getting richer mm. and the poorer getting poorer. So if you have wealth that has been accumulating or has not been touched for over a whole year, so if I have, for example, say you know a thousand pounds in my bank lying around yeah. and I have not touched it, it's collecting dust or whatever mm. it is, I have it's compulsory for mm. that person to give two point five percent to a treasury. Yeah, and 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 give that year on year. Give that year on year. Yeah, as long as you've not touched it. Yeah, that includes gold. Yeah. As well. sure. So if you have gold lying around for all mm. our women out there, you have gold, reserves, yeah. exactly, yeah. reserves lying around that you have not used for, mm. you know, functions, events or whatever it is, sure. you have to pay, in essence, whatever the value of that gold is, you have mm. to pay 2.5% um, of, that, of that value towards mm. the territory. Now, what, the, what does that tell you? For example, that tells us that the poor will never remain poor. Mm. They will always have some sort of assistance. In the time of world where poverty is here, you know, um, economy is dropping, etc., wealth inflation's high as ever, um, people are struggling to buy food, and the rich will always have the essence of giving charity, mm. knowing that the fact their wealth is being circulated through the system. Yeah. Right. So they, they always... that, And if you think about it, mm. 2.5% is nothing. And the essence it, of... It's nothing, but it's also massive. I mean, if you think massive. about it in a global scheme of things, exactly. you're absolutely right. If one person yeah. is saving a thousand pounds... Yeah. Right, that he has not touched for the whole year. Correct, and he pays two point five. It's nothing for him. It's nothing for him. But yeah. if he's paying two point five percent, and the amount of people that are so wealthy nowadays, hmm. right, who you know, billionaires, for, yeah, billionaires, hmm. forced trading, whatever it is, yeah, um, you know, stocks exchange, uh, etc. If they have savings of like a minimum a thousand pounds, and they're paying two five two point five percent every year, the amount of you know the treasury be full of wealth that can be utilized in hmm. need of aid. Hmm. And this is something that was established fourteen, you know, hundred years ago, yeah. um, by a person who's known to be illiterate, yeah. right? Um, who had no sense of, you know, this economic warfare or anything at all. He managed to establish it and thrived in the economy. Hmm. Not even one person, right, remained in poverty there. There was always some sort of aid and assistance during that time of need, right? right? Even for the fact before it even was established, like I said before. Um, you know, um, one way of worshiping God Almighty is serving humanity. Yeah. So right, the action's already there, right? These are just way of forms for us to redeem ourselves 
you know, in the way of Allah. And, and it's very simple, simple actions. So if mm-hmm. someone who's poor doesn't have a thousand pounds, it's not compulsory for him to pay anyways. Mm-hmm. So it's not a burden on you, right? And 2.5% is the minimum you have to pay. Yeah. So there's no limitations on how much you want to give. Charity is, charity is on one side. This makes sure that you fulfill your duties you know, towards your fellow beings and mm-hmm. you actually pay that compulsory um, 2.5% and help out, you know. Um, and this, you know, it's very... People tend to think that religion is... People tend to think that religion is a burden of oneself, that you have to follow certain rules and expectations, mm-hmm. etc. It's never a burden. It's there for you to increase your spirituality. It's mm-hmm. there for you to help people in need. It's, 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 it's a discipline. Yeah. If that was never there, then, you know... Um, like I always mention, then why 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 do we feel good in doing a good deed? Mm. Mm. What's the point of that? That's a form of discipline as well, yeah. right? Which leads towards religion, principle, teachings of Islam. Any type of religion always teaches the way of use of charity, anyways. Mm. So it like puts everything together and just presents you to a plate. Absolutely. Thank you very much uh, for that, uh, Imam Nabil Bhatti. Uh, and with that, we conclude our segment on um, the funding gap, the international aid gap uh, that uh, is is becoming an increasingly bigger problem. Um, we shall now take a very quick break. And when we come back, we will delve right into the second topic, which is about the link between mental health and cleanliness. Do stay tuned. Voice of Islam Radio. Assalamu alaikum and peace be upon you all, and welcome back to the live edition of the Breakfast Show here with me and Imam Nabil Bhatti and my lead presenter Daniel Zia. Um, we are moving on to our second segment of today, um, following the funding the gap from the first segment, where we had two specialists and uh, from organisations showing us the work that they do in uh, in the need of humanitarian aid and how the funding gap has affected them as well. Um, so moving on to the second segment, it's a segment between the link between mental health and cleanliness. This, uh, the gist of the story has been taken from verywellmind.com. And uh, the discussion points that we'll be discussing today is that how cleanliness affects your mental health or how these two have a relationship together. So the relationship between mental health, mental illness and cleanliness can depend on the individual, of course, and, you know, any specific illnesses that they have. In some cases, you know, maintaining a clean, clean environment 
can have a positive positive impact on mental health. So if you have a clean area, etc., it can promote you know a sense of control. It reduces stress, of course, definitely for me. If I'm working at a clean area, and uh, you know it can improve overall you know well-being for many people, especially for your colleagues. Um, so there are you know certain illnesses or I'd say disorders where individuals struggle for mental illness, such as you know anxiety disorders or OCD or depression. You know where they can um, have issues with cleanliness. And you know it can you know manifest in different ways, etc. So this was the just the story that we've been talking today. Thank you very much, Mamberti, for that. Uh, let's now play a short clip uh, from a question and answer session that His Holiness Hazrat Mizam Masrur Ahmed May Allah be his helper had with the students uh, from Canada, and uh, a question was asked around the best way for a student to manage uh, obligations around family, studies, physical, and mental health. So let's listen into this discussion um, uh, with this uh, particular student that His Holiness Hazrat Mr. Masood Ahmed had. Assalamu alaikum, beloved Hazur. I'm a post-grad student. I wanted to know what is the best way for a student to manage his obligations towards Khilafat, his family, his studies, and his physical and mental health. So, you know what are your obligations towards Khilafat? You know or not? Yes. What are they? To listen to the Khalifa of the time, to pray five times first, a day. First thing is that you should, your, your question should be that how can, how best we can discharge the duties we owe to Allah Ta'ala? Huh? So, if you discharge your duty towards Allah Ta'ala, the ultimate result of that will be that you will be discharging your duties for Khilafat as well. Right? That whatever Khalifa says, what does Khalifa say? That you bring change in your life, you try to be closer to Allah Ta'ala, you f- offer your five daily prayers, you do Tilawat of the Holy Quran daily, you find out the commandments given in the Holy Quran and try to practice those things, find out what are the do's and don'ts in the Holy Quran and what you have to do and what, what are the things which we, you should not do. You'll have to refrain yourself from those, right? These are your obligations, right? Secondly, so your studies. Study as long as you are a student, you have to work hard. Your goal and objective should be to excel in your studies, as I have already said. For that, you will have to work hard. If you see, a common, a good Russian student studies almost 12 to 13 hours a day. Do you spend that much time in your studies? If not, not that much. I try, not, but not that so, much. If not, then it means there's still a gap, and you have to fill that gap. You have to work hard. An American student, the, the student who excels in his studies, 
he studies for 12 to 14 hours. You will have to see to it. Are you studying that much? If not, it means you are not doing justice. So, for offering your prayer, five daily prayers, you spend only two hours. If you offer nawafil, another extra one hour or 45 minutes. So, three hours, right? And your body also has the right on you. And that is, you must have some sleep. And that should be up to six hours. Right? So six plus three for prayers, nine hours. And if you work hard, if you are praying fervently for three hours, you're trying to, uh, you know, pray as uh, has been uh, uh, commanded to us by Allah Ta'ala, then if you work for 11 hours or 10 hours, even then it will be equivalent to the, the work or study done by a non-believer for 14 hours. So you will save 3 hours here. Right? So 9 hours plus 10 hours, 19 hours. Eh? Plus 1 and a half hour for your eating and doing this and that thing. 20 hours, 30 minutes. Then one hour outside games and play or any recreation. 21 hours, 30 minutes. Right? And then give some time to your family. Have a good chat with them, discussion and this and that thing. One hour, that is enough. 22 hours, 30 minutes. Hmm? Then for studying, general, increasing your knowledge, general knowledge, one hour, 30 minutes to one hour. So in this, you have to do some time management. So if you manage your time in this way, that you will excel in your study, you will be discharging your duty towards Allah Ta'ala, and as a result, towards Khilafat, and to your religion, to your Jumaat. And on the weekends, you give some time to your Jamaat, Qudam al work. And then at the same time, spend weekend on uh, with, with your family members as well. Huh? So you make a plan for five working days and two weekends days. So this is how you can manage and do justice. Right? right. You'll have to find out the ways on your own. Right? Assalamualaikum. Okay. Allah Hafiz. So that was uh, His Holiness, Hazrat Mirza Masroor Ahmed, may Allah be his helper, advising uh, a young student from uh, Canada, actually, on how he can uh, a more, lead a more disciplined life. And, uh, and he went into quite a bit of detail about, you know, how many hours uh, there are in a day and, and how best to uh, to spend them. So uh, we are talking about the linkage that uh, exists between, uh, I guess, the, uh, the, the, the spiritual well-being and, um, uh, and the physical body. So 
what is that connection is there a connection between our body and our and our soul at the end of the day of course um you probably heard the hearing or say like few words strong mind strong body mm-hmm. but it yeah. also works strong body strong mind sure so uh, both of these assist each other um there's there's you know there's a Sir Zafrullah Khan sahab who was the companion mm. of the Prophet Messiah so he mentioned that um in his book Azo Islam and Protection of Health he said in order for us to spiritually progress our souls we have to look after our physical health right so basically the body the example that he gave the body is the container of the soul so if the container itself is very weak right um the soul itself um the container will break and the soul will spill over the contents will spill over so for 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 our soul to be into our best efforts we have to make sure our bodies also our best efforts and the minimum is that we have to keep ourselves clean and you know the basic basic requirement of cleanliness and as we do know that Islam teaches us that um cleanliness is half of our faith um and the way Islam has taught us that that is that physical cleanliness is a basic right that we owe to humanity um as we've heard so many times about the right of men or towards god's creation is to remain physically clean so that we can you know um afford comfort and live safe with those people around us um and this is very fundamental teachings that islam has given us in terms of that um and in the quran it states that allah loves those who turn to him and loves those who keep themselves clean Now as you are aware that our way of worship is of course to do our prayers before we do our prayers we have to physically get ready to spiritually elevate ourselves in front of Allah the Almighty so the only way we do that is through ablution now the listener might think that we only do that once a day no we don't we do it five times a day and it's come to say that as though the promise of messiah would always remain in the state of ablution right so whenever even if there is no prayers it's no it's not at the time of prayers he was still going to perform ablution and the way the ablution has given is it's in physical essence of an action that prepares us to go and perform the spiritual action that we need in where we push to in front of god so these are very few you know examples on where cleanliness has been taught um in 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 islam and through the actions of the holy prophet may peace and blessings of allah be upon him Thank you very much uh, for that and let's now go to um another clip which is from um an episode uh, of the series called Balance uh, a series of programs discussing contemporary issues related to Muslim women um on balancing life and faith um this clip is a discussion between the host and the guest dr nazian nigad uh, where uh, she talks about uh, lifestyle changes and how this can actually impact your mental health and and she starts off by actually defining what uh, mental, mental health and depression issues are as well let's listen in and mental health is so closely linked with spiritual and physical health yet we uh, pay very little attention to this aspect of our well-being so let's start from the beginning how is mental health defined mental health includes our social emotional and psychological well-being in fact it is it is how we act and think and it also helps us determine how we make choices how we react in a stressful situation 
So sound mental health is very important in every stage of the life, starting from childhood to adolescence, adulthood and senior years. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as you mentioned, sound mental health is so closely linked with spiritual and physical health. But when it comes to physical illnesses, as a society, as a culture, we tend to be more accommodating and understanding of physical illnesses. Mm -hmm. But when the term mental health comes, um, it seems as if we're uh, lacking some awareness or understanding. There is a stigma. Uh, around mental health illnesses. You know, whenever people hear that term, they tend to jump to crazy or unbalanced or unstable. Um, and that, of course, means that we're lacking the awareness and the understanding surrounding these issues. Exactly. I completely agree with you that we lack the awareness about the mental health. Mm -hmm. So mental health is being mindful of your triggers mm -hmm. and the things which makes you stressed, depressed or nervous. Mm -hmm. And mental health has a direct connection with our physical and spiritual health. Mm -hmm. So if we're not going to be mentally sound, it's going to affect how we pray mm -hmm. and how we do daily life activities. Mm -hmm. So it's very important to take away that stigma and better understand what mental health mm -hmm. means. Indeed, indeed. So let's start our discussion today with a very common nervous disorder that we have all experienced at one stage or another of our lives, which is anxiety. So firstly, what is it? Uh, anxiety, extreme apprehension, nervousness, it's a common response of human beings in response to a stressful situation. Mm -hmm. Anxiety means being fearful, stressed, or excessive worry. And we all have experienced the anxiety in certain mm -hmm. times of our life. Mm -hmm. And it can be helpful sometimes, like before writing an exam, mm -hmm. interview, public speaking. Mm -hmm. In fact, it helps us motivate mm -hmm. to prepare for that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. However, when anxiety gets excessive, uh, chronic, and it happens on everyday life. Mm -hmm. And that's the point where it needs to be addressed and treated. Mm -hmm. And this whole thing ca is called anxiety disorder. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay, so how does one identify it? What are some common symptoms? Typically, who suffer from anxiety, they experience a range of symptoms. Some of them are excessive worry about their children, about work, school performance, financial issues, when there is no direct threat to it. Mm -hmm. And some people also experience their heart beating goes very fast. They feel short of breath, chest tightness, muscle gets really tight, mm -hmm. and one common symptom is upset stomach. Mm -hmm. So these sound like very common, you know, symptoms that we've probably all felt at some stage mm -hmm. or another. So it seems like it's a very individualized condition. Are we able to treat it? And if so, how? Yes, it's treatable. And treatment typically involves uh, prayer, meditation, lifestyle changes, psychotherapy or a talk therapy. And if none of them works, then we move towards the medication. Okay, so, so we can start with simple techniques like relaxation techniques, deep breathing exercises, saying some durush sharif or saying salat on time or nawafil. Mm -hmm. In Quran, Allah says, when I get ill, it is he who restores me to health. Mm -hmm. So we should keep in our mind, whether it's a physical, mental or spiritual illness, mm -hmm. we have to uh, turn towards Allah, Ashafi, mm -hmm. to get the, the healing, uh, healing. Yeah. exactly. Mm -hmm. And other common things which we can do is affirming the positive self-talk. 
that plays a big role. Just mm -hmm. when you get anxious, you tell yourself, I'm okay, it's just mm -hmm. the anxiety. Mm -hmm. I'm gonna get over with mm -hmm. it. Talking to a friend whom you can trust, mm -hmm. because when it comes to the mental health, trust is a big issue, mm -hmm. whom you, who you can trust about mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. So whom you can trust and talking to that friend is very, also makes a big difference. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Also, just thinking about the present, rather worrying about the future because mm -hmm. nobody can predict the future. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So these are the simple things mm -hmm. which we can introduce on, mm -hmm. in our lives to help mm -hmm. us. I think lifestyle also plays a very big role in controlling our stress and our anxiety levels. Um, and you know, we oftentimes see that as stress levels rise, people start to reach for that bag of chips or, or that ice cream and, and they go through what's called emotional eating, which of course we regret in the long run. Exactly. Right, so that was a, a short clip from the, the program called Balance. Um, and in this uh, program, as you heard, the um, the ladies are talking about the relationship between um, uh, life and faith and uh, and lifestyle changes, which can actually uh, greatly impact men one's mental health as well. Um, let me now read a short um, excerpt from... Uh, one of the greatest uh, books ever written. So this was uh, written by the promised Messiah, uh, may peace be upon him. And it's called The Philosophy of the Teaching of Islam. So anybody who hasn't read this book, I would strongly urge them to read this book. And you can go to uh, alislam.org to get a copy of this, uh, a free copy of this book. Uh, um, the website again is A-L-I-S-L-A-M, one word, dot org. Um, and the name of the book is Philosophy of the Teaching of Islam. And um, in this book, uh, the Promised Messiah wrote, The third source, which should be described at, as the beginning of the spiritual, spiritual state of man, is called by the Holy Quran as Nafse Mutmainna, that is to say, the soul at rest. As is said in the Holy Quran, chapter 89, verses 28 to 31, And thou, O soul at peace, return to thy Lord well pleased with him, and he well pleased with thee. So enter thou among my chosen servants, and enter thou my garden. That again is from Holy Quran chapter 89 verses 28 to 31. The promised Messiah then goes on to write, That is, O soul at rest, that has found comfort in God, return to thy Lord. Thou well pleased with him, and he well pleased with thee. Now join, now join my chosen servants and enter into my garden. This is the stage when the soul of a person being delivered from all weaknesses is filled with spiritual powers and establishes a relationship with God Almighty without whose support it cannot exist. As water flowing down from a height on account of its volume and the absence of any obstruction rushes with great force, in the same way the soul at rest flows towards God. That is indicated by the divine direction to the soul that has found comfort in God to return to its Lord. It undergoes a great transformation in this very life and is bestowed a paradise that while still in this world, he experiences it. As this verse indicates, 
in its direction to such a soul to return to its Lord, it is nourished by its Lord and its love of God becomes its nurture. And it drinks at this fountain of life and is thus delivered from death. This is indicated at another place in the Holy Quran where it is said, He indeed truly prospers, who who purifies it, and he who corrupts it is ruined. Chapter 91, verses 10 to 11. That is, who who purifies his soul of earthly passions shall be saved and shall not suffer ruin, but he who is overcome by his earthly passions should despair of life. In short, these three states may be called the natural, moral, and spiritual states of man. As the natural urges of man become very dangerous when they are roused and often destroy the moral and spiritual qualities, they are described in the God's holy book as the self that incites to evil. It may be asked, what is the attitude of the Holy Quran towards the natural state of man? What guidance does it furnish concerning it? And how does it seek to control it? The answer is that according to the Holy Quran, the natural state of man has a very strong relationship with his moral and spiritual states, so much so that even a person's manner of eating and drinking affects his moral and spiritual states. If the natural state of a person is subjected to the control of the directions of divine law, it becomes his moral state and deeply affects his spirituality, as is said that whatever falls into a salt mine is converted into salt. That is why the Holy Quran has laid emphasis and stress on physical cleanliness and postures and their regulation in relation to all worship and inner purity and spiritual humility. Reflection confirms that physical conditions deeply affect the soul. For instance, when our eyes are filled with tears, even if the tears are are artificially induced, the heart is immediately affected and becomes sorrowful. In the same way, when we begin to laugh, even if the laughter is artificially induced, the heart begins to feel cheerful. It has also been observed that physical prostration in prayer induces humility in the soul. As a contrast, when we draw ourselves up physically and strut about with a neck raised and a breast pushed forward, this attitude induces a mood of arrogance and vainglory. These instances establish clearly that physical conditions certainly affect spiritual conditions. End of quote. So that was a quote from, uh, or an excerpt from the book, The Philosophy of the Teachings of Islam, written by um, Hazrat Mirza Ghulam Ahmed, the promised Messiah. May peace be on him. And uh, you can read this book once again by going to alislam.org and you can download a copy. Um, Imam Nabil Bhatti, so, um, yeah, I mean, those are very, very uh, deep words and, and I guess clearly say and, 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 and clearly explained in, in such, such plain language uh, the link between um, our, our body and soul. Of course, of course. Um, people tend to, you know, 
you know, this, like I said before, the soul has a directly linked to your body and the actions that you do. So if you're living in a state of, you know, um, uncleanness and you you haven't looked after yourself or physically you're very weak, mm. automatically that affects your mental and spiritual being, right? And, um, and once that's, this is vice versa, if mentally you are weak, your body's in the same state. So like I said before, so strong mind, strong body, and Islam has taught us that for us to be in our up, most peak um, form of spirituality, we have to look after ourselves physically, right? And people around us as well, not just keeping it to yourself. And that links to any action that you do, like we were mentioning before, um, any form of charity you do is a form of action that will affect your soul directly, even if you believe in a God or not. Any, any good deed that you'll do will affect your soul. Um, we get a tend of happiness from it. So all these actions and deeds definitely affect you physically and spiritually. And um, like the correctly read as well, it perfectly, you know, summarizes it in terms of that. And the actions of the Holy Prophet, may um, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, to us like how he would personally remove any stone or twig or any, you know, form of obstacle from pathways and used to tell others people to do it as well. And he would make sure that, you know, his form of, you know, anything that he's wearing is nice and clean. He would keep himself, you know, visibly um, very clean and presentable to others mm. in the same way that he would pre- present himself in front of Allah the Almighty. So the Prophet Messiah he also mentioned as though you should always be in a state where you know that Allah the Almighty is watching you. So if you have that in mind, that's, a, you know, for someone that, especially for our Muslim brothers out there, that if they are, if if you are, if you keep that sense in mind that Allah the Almighty is watching, you automatically will make sure that you're clean, hmm. and you're always ready in the form of you know prayers, and sure. the remembrance of Allah. We were talking about mental illness, that in the Holy Quran it mentions is in the remembrance of Allah that hearts can find comfort. Hmm. So to remain in that state as always, uh, would make sure that you know your soul is being cleansed at the every second of the time you remember Allah. Um, I guess it will be opportune to to spend maybe um, a couple of minutes talking about the importance of cleanliness uh, in Islam. You know, hygiene is something which is very, very important and Islam has laid uh, great emphasis on that. Um, Can you just probably um, talk about what are the various injunctions and, um, uh, and, and the importance of cleanliness in Islam and what are the um, the injunctions that uh, that Islam actually uh, 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 prescribes for all Muslims? So basically, what it is like I mentioned before it is the basic minimal requirement of cleanliness, right? So, um, like like we know, though, that the basic injunction is that you need to make sure you physically clean yourself. Um, you make sure that you know there's certain aspects physically that you have to make sure and look after. Um, uh, to a certain degree, um, but there are certain, you know, principles. In fact, that when you are going in the form of prayers, there's certain things that will break your. I would say, it will break your. In the way you perform your prayers, for example, if you have had, you know, sexual intercourse, right, and you have not performed ablution, ablution is just a minimal requirement. You have to take a full-on shower. Right before you go into your morning prayers or whenever you will perform such acts, mm-hmm. right? So that's something that is very um, focused on, that if you don't take a shower mm-hmm. after performing, you know, sexual intercourse, um, you, your prayer will not be, will not be accepted, mm-hmm. 
right? Breaking of the wind is also one. Mm. If um, if you perform the ablution and you uh, you know um, broke wind, etc., uh, um, you you have to perform ablution again. So, so you have to perform ablution basically before every every yeah. prayer. Yes. And and what is ablution? Can you can you just maybe so so just a very quick summary of it is yeah. um, this is there's a, there's a prayer you read and then you, the actual actions of it is of course you do um, you wash your hands three times up to your wrist and then you wash your mouth three times and then you wash your nose, you rinse your nose with your left mm. hand three times and then is your face three times and then you you perform something called, um, I don't know the actual word for it, is where you get some water and you wipe your whole hair mm. throughout to the back of your neck and make sure that that's done as well and then it's from your wrist to your elbows right from left three times mm-hmm. and then towards the end you wash your f- um, feet, feet. Yeah. Uh, so your feet to your ankle three times, right yeah. to left. So so essentially, you know, uh, you're basically having a shower. <laughs> <laughs> almost there, yeah. O- almost there. It's and, just, and that's something that you need to do. Almo- uh, almost you have to do. You have to do your prayers. Otherwise, yeah. your prayers are not yeah. accepted. And this right. is this is like um, you know, once you start doing this type of things, you you just become in a habit of it. Yeah. Um, the promised Messiah used to say that it, it should come to such a degree. It's just it's part of your nature. Yeah. Right. And the companions of the promised Messiah would always remain in the state of ablution. Yeah. If they're going if they had food they will go and perform ablution. It's yeah. not even prayer time yet. Sure. Yeah. The, that sense of cleanliness would make sure that any form of action you do you think twice. Yeah. Right? Before if, if this is beneficial for me, is this a good deed, etc. I'm in the state of ablution, I'm clean, I need to do so that it's that a mental you, preparation, right? Exactly. So that makes you feel clean mentally. Exactly, as well. exactly. Yeah. And before anything you do you'll think twice. Yeah. Um, and it became such part of their nature that um, smallest, smallest things that for me and you might not be a sin, for them it was a sin, hmm. right? And it, it was very like that's that's the state of the companions of the promised Messiah, um, right. may peace be upon him. And this is the same with the Holy Prophet. Um, you know, at that time they were they were barbarians; they didn't know what cleanliness was. Yeah, right. And the Holy Prophet came down, and then he he he, he had to teach them from scratch All one. These things, yeah. But they came to they they they. They managed to achieve such a level of um, spirituality and cleanliness yeah. that, um, like I said, they were in the state as on ablution at all times, mm. and their actions would show it. Right? None of their actions was perceived as you know. Um, so the actions became clean as well as a result of the ablution. That, that physical, That's, that, that physical state you're in automatically. You, yeah. you and I can even tell whenever the behavior improved. Yeah. Of course, of course. Any ablution before before prayers, it just automatically prepares you to go in front of God Almighty, which is, I think, in a way, is a blessing for us because anything you've done before that, it basically just washes everything off, yeah. right? Knowing that, look, this is my time of repentance. Let me, you know, uh, prostrate um, before my Lord and you know, ask for forgiveness. And the only way I can do that is to get rid of all this, um, you know, um, unseen, I would say, dirt on me mm. and physically get rid of it and prepare myself mentally and just go straight into my prayers and uh, focus between my relationship between my, my me and my God. So this is, I think, in, in a way, it's a blessing in disguise that we have, um, you know, that we can actually go into that state and uh, build in our relationship with Allah the Almighty. Excellent. Thank you very, very much uh, for that, uh, Imam Bhatti. And that brings us uh, towards the end of the show this morning. We have talked about two topics today. So the first topic was about the funding gap, the aid gap that exists between what is needed around the world and desperately needed around the world and what is being made available or what is being pledged. 
uh, by various donors, governments, um, uh, and such like. And the second topic uh, was about the link, the huge link between cleanliness and mental health as well. And we delved deep into both of these topics. If you haven't had a chance to listen to this show live, you can always go into SoundCloud and listen to the recording. I must thank our producers, Samab Rahman, Zohan Adeem, our researchers, Safanur Ahmed, Faiza Mansoor, and Sabah Zakria, as well as excellent support from the deck room from Mr. Akeb. Uh, thank you to you as well, Imam Nabil Bhatti. We shall be back um, in a week's time on Monday, um, next Monday. Until then, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you.